We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you independent science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on what they're up to and how you can get involved. My name's Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host, Ollie Dove. Ollie, you're usually leading up marine science content, so what are we talking about today? Today, Neve, we are talking about fishery science, and we are joined by our expert guest, Craig Proctor. Hi, Craig. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Ollie, and thanks, Neve. It's good to be here. Craig, you have just reached the ultimate freedom and retired from a career in fisheries sciences. So we're going to unpack that career more, but to begin with, we're going to head back to the very beginning of that career. What led you into fishery science? Well, I, th- I think I can put it down to being inspired by one man. Uh, well, actually, it was a TV program, to be truthful. The expeditions of the Jacques Cousteau Society oh. and Jacques Cousteau himself. And I was just, I just thought, wow, wouldn't that be fantastic to be out there on the water doing research, studying marine life, the marine environment? So that's what, yeah, that's... Mm what kicked off my interest and then through high school I kept it in the back of my mind that that's something I would like to pursue, Uh, certainly something in science but yeah I had a particular strong feel for the marine area. And did your career end up looking anything like you imagined when you were back in high school? Yes, fortunately it did but it probably didn't deserve to end up looking (laughs) (laughs) it was just a a few quirks of fate. after doing my Bachelor of Science at Zoology at Melbourne University, I actually did an honours project, uh, so the year-long project in freshwater biology, looking at the development of musculature in juvenile trout and seeing how the muscles, the physiology of the muscle changed as the fish grew larger and stronger and putting little trout into this fishing flume that we, we built and subjecting them to stronger and stronger currents. It was, I'm not sure we'll get past animal ethics these days, but <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was a, a fun project. Um, got me out into the field, up at Snobs Creek Fish Hatchery in Victoria, up near Eildon. But after that year, I took a gap year and really didn't know what to do next. And then by the end of that gap year, I was bored and thought, well, I'll do a PhD. Without really having that strong desire to do a PhD, it was really just, I was really just doing it because I couldn't think of anything else to do. And whenever I get advice to young ones, younger uh, graduates um, or high school students thinking about a career in science or a career in anything really, and they're thinking about doing a PhD, I say, you really must go into it. Not like I did. You need to go in with that passion. Because I sadly, I didn't finish that PhD. And so that was in Adelaide. Um, I did um, a project on the blue ring octopus, population, biology and behaviour, and several years of it. Mm-hmm. But then my scholarship ran out, so that was the first quirk of fate, I guess. Was uh, The scholarship ran out and I was desperate for funds to live on and I, I was, I don't know, stupidly too proud to go and ask my parents for support. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they would have supported me. 
but uh, they were they were still in Melbourne, and so um, I took advantage of a part-time job that came up in the School of Dentistry slash Department of Pharmacology. So totally different to what I was doing for the PhD. And that that was a part-time job initially, just two days a week, and then it became two and a half, and then three. And the PhD was already in write-up at that stage, the early stages, but it just crept more and more towards the edge of the desk. And eventually I found just about all my time was taken up with this this job in pharmacology and dentistry. And then this job appeared in the paper for for the job in CSIRO that I eventually applied for and was successful in getting. But had I not done the combination of the scuba diving work for the the octopus work in the PhD, they were after someone with scuba diving experience, but they also wanted someone with proven ability to twiddle knobs and do analysis on machinery. And I just happened to have, by that stage, the right mix, so I was extremely lucky. Do you find that when you first started at CSIRO, there were any drawbacks that you had to overcome because you hadn't technically finished? No. Uh, initially, I was employed just for a two-year position, and fortunately for me, they extended that and ended up being there for 33 years. <laughs> but the only time it became an issue, the unfinished PhD, apart from when my mother had had more than a glass of wine to drink and she was getting stuck into me, when are you going to finish that PhD, Craig? And my dad would pipe in, leave the boy alone, Denny. And this was when I was 50 years old, you know, <laughs> still getting stuck into me. Uh, was a career moves in CSIRO. So if you don't have a PhD, it's not impossible, but it's a lot harder to make the jump from experimental scientist, as I was all the way through my CSIRO career, to research scientist grade. Is the type of work different? Like, are research scientists doing more project management and experimental scientists are doing more like data analysis and data collection, or are the roles quite similar? Yes, it's fair to say that a research scientist would be doing more of the project leading, project management. Mm-hmm. But as I say, I, I I remained an experimental scientist all the way through my career, and I ended up leading projects. So yeah, it's not it's not a total block to doing that. Yeah. Mm. Um, what sort of projects were you involved in? Well, the start at the very start, of that first two year position was to analyse the chemistry of otoliths, the fish ear bones. Otoliths are organs that fish have in their heads. They are calcium carbonate bones little bones, and they're, they're commonly referred to as ear bones, because they act like ears. They, they're a sensory organ. They detect vibration and movement. So the fish have three pairs of these small bones in their head. Um, all fish have them. And the larger of those pairs, what they call the sagity, have growth rings, just like growth rings in a tree. They're laid down incrementally as the fish grows through its life. Well, that's been a huge bonus to fisheries scientists for decades and decades because you take out those ear bones, the otoliths, section them, and you can count the growth rings, the annual rings. But even in the small fish, the juvenile fish, right down to larvae, you can count the daily rings and get a daily count. Wow. Um, up to a certain age, and then they become too tight. Mm-hmm. And then it's just the annual banding that you can then read to get a, an annual age. So that's what otoliths had been used primarily for, only for, up until uh, around about the late 80s, early 90s. And that's when we came in with the work at CSIRO to look at the utility of the chemistry of those bones to get information about fish migration and stock structure. 
So using the chemistry to see if we could get matches of fish taken from different areas by analysing the early growth part of the bone, which is called the primordium, so the growth centre, the chemistry around that, to see if fish, say, collected in... Well, I'll use one of the, the fish that we worked on, jackass moong, which is a fish that you'll catch off the wharves here. It's sometimes called perch, a species name, Nemodactylus macropterus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, jackass moong were a very good model species to work on initially because they're relatively sedentary, or be- they were believed to be re- relatively sedentary, and we could sample them from various areas around Tasmania, Victoria, and into the Great Australian Bight. So from a point of view of comparing the chemistry of the growth centres of those otoliths, they were a good choice. And the other species we looked at in that particular project was southern bluefin tuna, and you couldn't get two more different species, one relatively sedentary and one highly migratory. You know, uh, southern bluefin tuna moving from the southern ocean right up into the tropics and making long-range migrations. So again, with the southern bluefin tuna, we were looking at the chemistry at the primordium to see whether fish caught as juveniles and as adults in various areas had chemistry match at the primordium to tell us whether they were all from that one nursery ground or whether there, there were multiple nursery areas. There are lots of other labs in the world that are working in that area and we've just recently been doing studies with Indonesia and other countries employing the otolith chemistry to look at migrations of tuners that, that are important to them. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Craig has been giving us a fascinating overview of how his career started, but stay with us in just a moment and we'll be talking about what he's been doing more recently. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about fisheries science. My name is Ollie Dove and I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Craig Proctor. Now Craig, you just briefly mentioned before the break working with Indonesian fisheries. Can you tell us a bit more about your work with them? Yes, uh, and this brings in one of the other quirks of fate in my, <laughs> my career path. So perhaps I'll start there. So after the otolith chemistry work, in fact while I was still doing the otolith chemistry work, I joined a group called CRIMP, C-R-I-M-P, Centre for Research on Introduced Marine Pests. And I was still in CRIMP when I got a tap on the shoulder from John Gunn, who was leading the pelagic fisheries, the, the, the tuna fisheries group. I'll call it the tuna fisheries group, but it's also known as the pelagic group uh, at that stage. And he said, Craig, Tim, i.e. Tim Davis wants to step back from the Indonesian work. So Tim had been working with Indonesia for about 10 years at that stage in collaborative work that kicked off all for one species, southern bluefin tuna. Because the Indonesian longline fleet were fishing on the only known spawning ground of southern bluefin tuna, which is nested below Indonesia and by northwestern Australia, that is the only known spawning area for that species. In contrast to some of the other large tuners like yellowfin tuna and big eye tuna, which have quite broad spawning areas. So southern southern bluefin tuna has this relatively small area. So what I'm leading to is there was a lot of concern about the impact of those Indonesian longliners pulling out the big fat spawning, the fish that had gone up there to spawn from the southern ocean down here. 
And Tim had been working with Indonesia to establish a much better system of monitoring the southern bluefin tuna fishery, how many were being caught, the size of the fish, the sex of the fish, all, all the aspects of that Indonesian fishery. But he wanted to retire. Not straight away, but he wanted to start stepping back. And it was only because I had the language, Bahasa Indonesia, from high school. I had the skills. And I'd been helping Tim occasionally. He, he always said to me, Craig, I'm not a language person. So whenever he wanted to ring the Indonesian Institute, he would come downstairs, get me out of my office and say, can you come and help me? And it was fantastic for me because I got to use the language, which at school I never, ever thought, ever dreamed of that it would be useful in my work. So I almost dislocated my shoulder in punching the... John, yes, I'd love to. <laughs> Even though I was really enjoying the, the crimp work, the marine pest work, still really enjoying it. Most of that was Tasmanian-based. We did a bit some work up in southeastern Victoria for the green crabs so but but most of it was local but the thought of, of becoming essentially an international scientist was oh, which is fantastic so fortunately I had an overlap with Tim by almost four years as he stepped back I stepped forward into the role. With working in Indonesia with those fisheries it was great that you had the language skills from high school but how was it adapting to scientific language was there a lot to learn the fish names must have all been different and you wouldn't have learned that in school how did you find the process yeah there were certainly challenges ollie that's that's for sure having the language uh, was was a huge benefit to me right from the outset it was quite rusty I literally got out my books from high school and, and blew the dust off and, and relearned. In fact, I, I repeated my trick um, at Hobart College to help, and that helped a lot. But yes, working with Indonesian government, uh, working with Indonesian industry was, was challenging, even having the language skills. Um, I gradually built up my confidence progressing the language, and it ended up giving a good number of talks in Bahas, Indonesia, and... As the relationships developed with Indonesian scientists, I would spend more and more time writing emails in Bahasa Indonesia. And, but they would, they would like to practice their English as well, so there was always a bit, of a, a bit of a trade-off. It sounds like something like that type of work, Craig, could include a cultural element too, because you're trying to encourage people maybe to stop fishing somewhere because they might be impacting on the spawning season or behaviour of that fish. Did it include some sort of that, like cultural relations and educational components? Like, was it kind of like a big shift to turn over a long time, or am I off base on that? You're not off off base at all, Navy. A very big shift, and um, in fact, Tim had this. I think it was might have been in the very first week of working in this, of moving in to work with Tim on the Indonesian work. He said to me, "Craig, it's a long road, a long road, and." At times you want to get off that road, but don't. Stay on it, and you'll find that there are successes. You'll have these little successes along the road in helping Indonesia, and you'll also get a lot from them too. So stay on that road, and you'll find that, you'll, that you won't get too frustrated. And I always get that. It was good advice, because there were those really challenging times. But the good thing for us, and I say us being Australia, is that um, not just CSIRO, but Australia as a whole, is that Indonesia from the outset, were very, very supportive of anything we could do to help them uh, achieve more sustainable fisheries. They could see the warning signs. They could understand the warning signs and, the, and the, our explanation what would happen if, if the southern bluefin tuna were 
fished too hard on the spawning ground. Uh, it's actually not one, has never been one of their target species. It's, it's an incidental catch. They're really after yellowfin tuna and big-eye tuna on that spawning ground. But because the long-line fishing is non-selective, you know, it's whatever lands on the hook, the thousands of hooks that they put out on the line behind the boat, um, unfortunately they catch the southern bluefin tuna that have gone up there to spawn. Overall, the percentage of southern bluefin tuna in their catches is not large. It's a maximum of, of on average, around about 4 or 5% of the overall catch. But it's because those fish are the spawning fish always been the concern and as I say Indonesian industry and Indonesian government were always on board with that that the need that there was a need for better monitoring a need for better data for, for assessments of the population so that was a battle already won essentially they were already on board so um, does that monitoring data then contribute to making changes in the way they undertake that their fishing um, like, you know, do they do use slightly different areas at different times or are there quotas? Someone who knows nothing about how fisheries mm. work. <laughs> well, you've, met, you've already mentioned a few very <laughs> key elements there, Neve. Yes. Although we've now been working, well, it's now more than two decades with Indonesia on in this area, yeah, we're still behind the eight ball as far as fisheries management, effective fisheries management as such for the tuna fisheries, in fact, for many of their marine fisheries. You know, a lot of effort has gone in so far to improving the quality of data that comes out of those fisheries that's collected, but the actual implementation of effective fisheries management still has a ways to go. Uh, there has been good progress, um, particularly in the last few years, with movement towards an effective harvest strategy. What do you mean by a harbour strategy? Well, a strategy that will have lots of key inputs to assess the status of the fishery at any one point in time and then deciding on a set agreed um, plan of action depending on what that status is. So in a harvest strategy you have various reference points. You have a target reference point where you would like the fishery to be. It's normally referred to in terms of the percentage of spawning biomass, original spawning biomass that exists at that point in time. And looking towards the future, similarly to how Tim passed the baton on to you, do you find yourself able to step back and let someone else take over or are you still, are you finding it hard to step away from the project? I have been fortunate in being able to maintain some contact, even though retired, through CSIRO's post-retirement honorary fellowship scheme. So I've really enjoyed the opportunity to keep some contact with the Indonesian work. The person who has taken over my position, her name is Rani Ekawati, is Indonesian. So that's a, an extremely nice fit to have a, an Indonesian as a member of the team, of the research team. But I hope I didn't make it sound like I was the only uh, member of the <laughs> CSIRO Indonesian team because it was quite a large group. I guess I saw myself right through my almost 20 years of working with Indonesia as the key facilitator for the on-the-ground work up there. Again, that's where the language really helped and uh, I sometimes give talks to school groups and I, I tend to bang on a bit about the importance of if you're learning a language don't let it lapse you know put it in your pocket and you never know when you might better pull it out and use it could okay. change your whole life like it did for me yeah I can't believe that you still remembered any yeah. <laughs> that you'd learned I learned French in high school for about seven years and I tried to order a coffee once in France and it didn't go very well <laughs> 
You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay with us in just a moment. We'll be talking more to Craig about some of the um, work he's done with schools and other ways he talks about science with the community. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we are chatting about the underwater world of fishery science. My name is Ollie Dove, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, Craig Proctor from CSIRO. Now, Craig, what you finished off there in the second part of the show today pretty much perfectly goes on to what I want to ask you about now. You were involved in a program called STEM Professionals in Schools, where you partnered up with a local school here in Hobart and went in to show them a bit of work with otoliths, but it was also one of their Indonesian classes, if I'm right in thinking. Could you tell us about it? Yes, Solly, uh, that's right. The what was called the Scientist in Schools program when I first joined it in around, around about 2010. I joined it because it, I saw reference to it. We have a, you know, a daily digest, it's called, for the labs at CSIRO, which all staff receive, and there was a, a mention of this program, Scientists in Schools, and they were looking for new starters, uh, scientists that would might be willing to give up a little bit of time to go along and form a relationship with a school, or it could be multiple schools, and give talks to the kids, to the students, um, or it could be really hands-on and actually have lab, you know, a lab class. So I was really fortunate to be able to form a bond with the school where my daughters had gone to school, a primary school, Lansdowne Crescent uh, Primary School in West Hobart. And on my first visit to the school, to talk to the headmaster, Peter Marmion, a headmaster at the time, about how the relationship could, what form it could take, I was sitting there in Peter's office and he said, Craig, you work with Indonesia, don't you? I said, yes. He said, well, our Indonesian teacher, Bu Ingrid, Ingrid Coleman, is here. And she just happened to be out in the corridor. I'd already met Ingrid before through my daughters, but I I didn't really know her very well. Anyway, from the moment she sat down in the other chair in Peter's office, it became a two hats relationship. So working with the kids on Bahasa Indonesia, throwing a bit of Bahasa Indonesia into my presentations, not too much and not too high level, of course, but enough to give them some practice. The other hat, of course, being the science, so talking to them about what work we were doing in Indonesia, um, but as I say, I wouldn't pass up that opportunity to bang on about mm. <laughs> the importance of having the language. So it was great. And I've been so lucky that that relationship still continues. Even though I'm retired, I've been allowed to continue as the what is now the STEM professionals in schools relationship. Oh, that's so brilliant. And it's not the only type of outreach you're involved in at the moment. So listeners, Craig has his own show on print radio Tasmania called Vibes Under the Sea. What's the show about and how did it come into creation? It's, uh, it came about, Ollie, through just one question that was posed to me um, at the radio station. So this is print radio Tasmania. It's the first of the radio for the print handicapped stations in Australia, which was established in, Te- in Hobart in 1982 and every capital city has an RPH station now and uh, Print Radio Tasmania were looking for new program ideas and last year, mid last year, they asked me, Craig have you got any ideas for a new program and although my mind went straight to, oh a fishing program or or something like that, I said well Hobart's full, Tasmania is full of marine scientists in one form or another, we've got CSIRO, IMAS with UTAS and the Antarctic Division. 
and also to Pipwi state government. You know, there's no shortage of watery scientists and unlimited number of postgraduate students doing watery projects, both marine and freshwater. So I said, what about that sort of program, maybe half-hour program, a fortnightly? And they said, great, go away, prepare some pilot oh. episodes. So I did, and, and they liked it, and it's we're up to now... Episode 9 will play next week. And where could people listen if they wanted to tune in? Well, if they want to hear it live, they just go to Print Radio Tasmania website. Um, and it's on. It's a bit of a strange time. It's Thursday nights at 9.30pm mm-hmm. every fortnight. But the podcasts are there on their Listen Again page on the website. And I recommend that you all have a listen in. I've heard some of them and they're really great. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thanks. Now, we're going to end off the show on a big question. Looking back across your whole career, what was your most meaningful or memorable moment? Wow, that's a big... Well, perhaps I'll relate a funny moment. Um, It is very memorable in my mind, and it links to the language. Uh, So I was giving... I think it was my first talk in Bahasa, Indonesia, to the fishing industry. So it was an annual meeting that we have where we talk to the fishing industry about what we're doing is for monitoring their fishery and also opportunity for them to tell us what's important to them at the time, how their fishery's going and what's impacting on them. And so this was in Bali, in the room of one of the fish processing companies. And I was explaining to them about our plans to set up an enumeration team, teams of enumerators that would collect data on a daily basis. And I had a diagram of the tuna and I was pointing to its and I said that the uh, enumerators will measure the fish from the head to the tail. Uh, but instead of using the word head, I used the word kalapa instead of kapala. Both had the same letters, but s- different spelling. And they packed up, <laughs> they all packed up laughing. And I couldn't work out what, what are you laughing about? It's not that funny. <laughs> uh, it turns out that's because kalapa is coconut. So I basically <laughs> oh. said. The enumerator is going to measure from coconut to the tail. And um, anyway, <laughs> it was <laughs> I'm still living that moment down. Um, but working in Indonesia, there were so many moments I could relate, but I'm sure we don't have time. But um, I think that's a lovely moment, one of those wholesome things where you're out there trying your best and everyone's laughing. You're like, why are they laughing at me? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Craig. And thank you, Ollie, for preparing an awesome episode and linking me up with Craig because I've really enjoyed the storytelling today I hope you enjoyed it too listeners and if you did please let us know by uh, liking some and subscribing wherever you get your podcast or getting in touch with us on social media my name's Dr Neve Chapman and until next time thanks and goodbye this program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation find out more at cbf.org.au You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.